study this morning in Philippians chapter 1. And I apologize ahead of time. I, I, as I was studying, I was looking at this chapter going, okay, I, I'm goal-oriented goal like I've been talking about. So I want to not only finish the chapter, but I want to move into chapter 2. But there was so much in this last portion that I missed. And then on top of that, there's just so much in this passage that I wanted to make sure I did my due diligence. So today, as we begin in chapter 1 of Philippians, I, I wanted to remind you of a few things that Paul has mentioned. And one of those things is found in verse 12. He said this phrase, and it kind of gives us a key to uh, where he's at practically and, and, and mentally and spiritually. He's, he's struggling. He's suffering. Where, where is Paul? He's in prison. And why is Paul in prison? Because he shared the gospel and because he believes in Jesus. And so Paul wanted to go to Rome. We talked about that last time. And he wanted pro to pro proclaim the, the gospel of Jesus Christ to the people in Rome. But when he got there, the way that he got there even, ended up being him in chains. Now, when we're in chains, when we feel like we're chained to something, sometimes the, the tendency is to go, well, I can't do anything. I'm stuck. But what Paul explains is that everything, according to verse 12, he says, I want you to know, I want you to know, brethren, that the things which happened to me, and we look at that, right? We look at our lives and we say, life is happening to me, therefore I'm out of control, I can't do anything about it. But he says, the things that have happened to me have actually turned out for the furtherance of the gospel. They've actually, they haven't hindered the gospel, but they've actually advanced the gospel. They haven't hit the brakes. They've actually been the way that God's been hitting the gas. And I love this because I like to go fast. I like to move forward. I don't like to be held back, and I definitely don't like to be dragged back. And Paul said, I'm in chains, but the things that have happened to me have actually pressed the gas, not the brakes. And I love this because Paul is in jail. If Paul in jail can be for the furtherance of the gospel, what is the thing in your life that has you feeling like you can't be used by God, that has you feel like you can't move forward, like you're always being dragged backwards. He says it's been for the furtherance of the gospel. Now, we think of going further. Maybe you guys think like I do. You think about the, the Mazda commercial from a few years ago that said, you know, you'd see the car and it was zooming and going through all the streets and the, the roads and the highways, and then it would stop right in front of you, and it would say, go farther, go farther, right? Drive more not less. And look at cars the way they are today. You don't have to trade them in at 60,000 miles. They still got a whole life left. So what does he mean by furtherance? Furtherance of the gospel. Everything that's happened has been for the furtherance of the gospel. Well, if you look up the meaning, it actually means to make a, um, I wrote it down here, a pioneer advance. You guys know the story of the pioneers. Uh, they were people that you know, we, we're not pioneers anymore. Most things that you can, there's no new land to go into. There's some, but there's still like a grocery store within a half an hour. You know, even the, the most remote places of this county, you can still get to a place that has civilization running water. So when he talks about a pioneer advance, think about uh, the game, what was it called? Um, uh, the, the Ozark Trail? No. Um, 
They, Oregon Trail. When I was raised, we were in, in school, and they had this, this program called Oregon Trail. And you, you sat in front of your Apple IIGS or whatever it was. It wasn't an iPhone, you young people. It was a computer where you put in an actual floppy disk. The thing was five and a quarter inches by five and a quarter inches, and you flopped that thing. It actually flopped. It wasn't like the three and a half disk that you guys think is ancient. It was older than that. And you push it in your computer, and then it starts going, and then it brings up these 2D images on the screen that are all one color. It was basically DOS-based, and it was all these zeros and ones that made up a picture. And as you're playing Oregon Trail, they had to make a pioneer advance. They were leaving the civilization as they knew it. They would get big barrels of materials. They would get hardtack to eat and, of course, bacon. You know, they would get, the, and it would be seasoned with tons of salt because you didn't have a refrigerator. You'd get in a, at a Conestoga wagon, or you could get the shorter one, or you'd get the limousine one, and you would take it across the United States, and they'd have wooden wheels. And people didn't just go out, you know, like from Farmington to here in one. They crossed the entire United States, and they would cross rivers, and they would have animals pulling them, and they crossed the Rocky Mountains. Now, if you know anything about vehicles, this is another segue, you can't just cross the Rocky Mountains in any vehicle. Uh, 20 years ago, you couldn't just take any vehicle across the Rocky Mountains because you would rise in elevation, and because you had a carbureted vehicle, you'd have to change the jets on it because it wouldn't work. There's not enough oxygen in the air to burn the fuel. So back to reality, back to what I was actually talking about, it's hard to go somewhere people have never gone before. It's hard to go places that you've never been before because it's a pioneer advance. You're going to where there are all these unknowns and you just have to, it has to be by faith. And so Paul says, all the things that have happened to me have been for the furtherance, the pioneer advance of the gospel. The gospel is being taken to a place it's never been before. Now, many times when we think about bringing people to Jesus, we think about bringing people to church, right? And so we'll bring people that go to a different church, or unhappy where they're at. But my heart for this valley is that God would use all of us in our current chains, in our current circumstances, for the pioneer of the gospel to people that have never heard it before. We've, there are so many people down here that have heard of Jesus, that are familiar with him, but have never heard the gospel. And so whether it's across the tracks, whether it's to Lesterville, whether it's, you know, God sent us out for a pioneer advance. Some of us drive a great distance to different towns. God wants to make a pioneer advance where he's sending you. Some of us don't go very far. He's making a pioneer advance in your family. So Paul's crisis in verse 19 through 26 actually leads to Christ being magnified in his life. Now, how can we as finite, small, individual people magnify the Lord? Think about that. Does God need to be magnified? How big is God? You think about magnifying something, you magnify something you cannot see, right? So, you know, little boys take a magnifying glass and they magnify the sun so they can burn an ant with it. You know, we use magnifying glasses also to see things. At work, Cindy and I, we have to look at these tiny drills and make sure that all the cutting edges are properly sharpened. So they got magnification going on everywhere because otherwise your eyes would just they fall out of your head from trying to see these things. They're so small. So how do we magnify the Lord? What does that mean? Many times in the Bible, uh, you hear people say, my soul doth magnify the Lord. That was Mary after she found out she was going to have Jesus as a baby. She says, I, I magnify the Lord with my soul. 
Well, that sounds great, but what does that mean? That sounds like some poetic scripture writer would write, but how do I do that in my life? Well, that's what we're going to talk about today. So in verse 21, Paul said in this section that for him to live is Christ and to die is gain. So let's just look at that real quick. What does Paul mean by to live is Christ and to die is gain? Well, let's take shopping. Everyone in here can relate to shopping. You guys go shopping with your wives. Some of you take your husbands, even though you don't want to take them to go shopping because it'll be miserable with them. You'll take them to the store and you'll go shopping. And when you're shopping, you're in the store and there are things that make you come alive that make your husband want to die. Like, I do not want to look at clothes. Now, he doesn't really want to die, but he'd rather be somewhere else, you know. And there are things that he wants to look at at the store that when he looks at them, he's all excited and you're like, what in the world? Who did I marry? Seriously, we're looking at car parts? What in the world? That doesn't even matter to me. So, For us, for me, when I walk into Walmart, I am not thinking, let's go look at baby clothes. But Kelly, we just walk by the thing, and she's like excited. She's like, hey, look, they got all these clothes on sale. And I like the sale, and I like how it affects me, but I do not want to look at... They all look the same. You think this will look good on Lucy? Yes, I love her. Everything looks good on her, right? Whatever. But I go to the other side, whether it's electronics, that's something that makes me come alive, or... The, the section that has all the, the sporting goods. And I'm not talking about soccer balls. I'm talking about guns. And I'm talking about fishing supplies. That makes me come alive. It makes me excited. Okay? But for Paul, what made him come alive like that was Jesus and people coming to know Jesus. It was his main life's goal. Read the book of Acts and you will see that he was willing to do literally anything to make sure that people knew Jesus. He risked his life. When he was almost killed, he got back up and he kept going. He was nearly stoned to death one time. And when he woke back up, his first thought was not, I got to get to a hospital. He went back into town so that he would show them the power of God being magnified and his still willingness to keep going when he was probably hurting pretty stinking bad. For the rest of his life, many believe after he was stoned at Iconium, his eyes leaked because of how bad he got beaten by rocks literally being chucked at him. There was something in Paul that continued to make him go, even when his body said, I can't anymore. So he says, to live is Christ and to die is gain. And um, actually, in verse 23, he talks about a desire to depart. He says, I am hard-pressed between two things, having a desire to depart and to be with Christ, in other words, to get out of this place, which is far better, he says, nevertheless to remain in the flesh is more needful for you. So he was pulled between two things, a desire to depart from this life and to be with his Savior, and a desire to stay with his Savior's people and to pour into them sacrificially. And so as we look at Paul, we see this unmeasurable, like I don't know if I could ever measure up to his desire to serve the Lord, But what I wanted to point out as I was reading this week is that word, his desire to depart, was not like an escape plan. He says the word depart there is a military term that means to take down your tent and to move on. So when we think about dying as Christians, 
Paul didn't look at it as, I'm dying and life's over and I just move on. He looked at it as, I'm taking off this tent. And this is many times he refers to our, our skin and our, our flesh as a tent, a temporary dwelling. We don't all you know, buy property and build a tent and go, hey, there you go, honey. Here's our homestead, right? We build a permanent dwelling, a house, something we call permanent. But Paul says, God's given us a tw- tent to dwell in while we're here. So if that is the case... We need to have a desire to depart and yet be willing to stay here to serve others. And so Paul's desire was that. He says, I have a desire to depart. One meaning was a military term to take down your tent and move on. Another was a political term, don't close your ears, (laughs) that meant to set a prisoner free. So like when our president, usually on Thanksgiving, pardons somebody, right? He pardons a turkey. But... In the same way, Paul says, hey, we have the ability to set, uh, or God will depart. He, we have a desire to depart, and that desire means that we, we want to be set free from the, the prison of this body. This body is still prone to sin. It has, still has the desire to sin. And so we, we struggle because we have a new nature. God saved us. He gave us a new nature, not a, a rebuilt heart, not a refurbished heart, but he gave us a new heart which means it has new desires, has new loves. And so because of that, he says, I want to depart from this tent that keeps holding me down from truly enjoying fellowship with the Lord. Think about it. Try to spend five minutes praying. And in that five minutes, I guarantee you will take on more of a beating from your flesh that desires to do anything other than sit still before the Lord and pray. Now you can walk and pray and you can do all these other things. But my point is the flesh riles. It goes against everything that we want to do spiritually. It fights us. You want to serve the Lord in a lock-in for youth? Your flesh says, I want to sleep, right? You want to serve the Lord by obeying Him and serving Him rather than your appetites? Your flesh cries out and says, I want to do this instead. So he says, I have a desire to depart, which means to set a prisoner free, or a farming term that actually means to remove or relieve an oxen of his burden. Think about it. What is an oxen? It's a beast of burden. It's what it's called in Scripture. And so you lay a yoke on top of this oxen, you harness his power, and he drags a plow through the ground and breaks up the dirt and the hard surface so you can prepare the ground to cultivate whatever you're going to plant. Well, in the same way, we serve the Lord, and yet Paul says, even though I love serving the Lord, I'm kind of caught between wanting to depart from this service. I want to move on to my heavenly dwelling, is what he's saying. So by Paul going through his current circumstances with this perspective of a desire to depart, and yet having a desire to continue to serve the Lord's people, this shows how much value Paul truly placed on the power of Jesus to deliver him through anything through anything that might come up, and the importance he placed on continuing to pour into the body of Christ until he breathed his last breath. Paul never looked at it like, I can't wait till my retirement for Jesus years. He always wanted to serve the Lord until he stopped breathing. So how can we, like Paul, magnify the Lord Jesus in this life? Many people get saved and they're like, "Ah, heaven is purchased for me, I can't wait. But why... God's left us here, so in the meantime, we have a calling to be salt and light in this world. So how can we magnify the Lord? Well, let's read on in verse 27 this morning. He says, 
Only this, and I guess we really need to read from verse 25. Paul says, Being confident of this, I know that I shall remain and continue with you all for your progress and joy of faith, that your rejoicing for me may be more abundant in Jesus Christ by my coming to you again. So he's asked them to pray for him, and he says, I'm confident that I will come to you again. He says, but in the meantime, he says, I I want to serve you, and I know that I shall remain and continue with you for your progress. So whether I'm with you or whether I'm not, I'm going to pray, and God's going to do what he says he's going to do. He who has begun a good work in you will be faithful to complete it, is what verse 6 he wrote. And so then he says, in verse 27, only let your conduct be worthy of the gospel of Christ, so that whether I come and see you or am absent, I may hear of your affairs, that you may stand fast in one spirit, with one mind, and striving together for the faith of the gospel, and not in any way terrified by your adversaries, which is to them a proof of perdition, but to you of salvation and that from God. For to you it has been granted on behalf of Christ not only to believe in Him, but also to suffer for His sake, having the same conflict which you saw in me and now here is in me. So there's a lot there, and you can see why I didn't plan on going any further past this. But he starts by saying, only let your conduct be worthy of the gospel of Christ. And we've talked about that term before. Being worthy of something means that it measures up. So it'd be like having a scale with what you say you believe and what you actually believe. He says, let it weigh the same. Does that make sense? Let your talk weigh as much as your walk. Let your, what you say weigh as much as your actions. He says, let your conduct be worthy of the gospel of Christ. And that word conduct is where we get our English word politic. Now, before you go there, we're not talking about politics. We're not talking about the political realm. We're talking about how we represent the kingdom from which we come from, like an ambassador. And he says there, uh, let your conduct be worthy of the gospel of Christ. Now, the Philippian believers would understand this, okay? Because they are a Roman colony. Imagine this. When people came over from Great Britain, from England, to colonize where we now live, they came over and they started colonies. And at the very beginning, those colonies would represent what nations those individuals came from that started the colonies. So you'd have little pockets of, you know, whether it was England or Germany or Spain or wherever people came from, France. If people came from different areas, they would bring with them the country they represented. Now, we know from the long run of things that they didn't end up being another one of those little countries, but what they did was they started their own country that was a melting pot of all those colonies. But in the Roman Empire, if you were a Roman citizen, you represented Rome. And so when you came to Philippi to colonize and make a little suburb of your own, you brought with you the flavor of Rome, and you represented it. You had the conduct of a Roman, and you were basically trying to transplant the Roman dream, not the American dream, the Roman dream in Philippi. And you were to basically have an effect on that culture and make a tiny Rome, if you will. So they understood this. So Philippi was a colony of Rome, and though Rome itself was far from their colony, 
They were to conduct themselves like Roman citizens because they were. Conduct yourself like the citizenship that you are. So believers had been formed into a colony in Philippi. And though the kingdom that they are citizens of, and as Christians we are citizens of first, the kingdom of God, that's heaven. And so though they are at this point far from heaven, and we are in a sense, Paul was telling them to conduct themselves here on earth as to properly represent the kingdom of their true citizenship. And you've heard this. We live in an area where it's still kind of traditional. Hey, when you go out to school, you represent our family. Behave like you're our family. If you're a Tedford, if you're a Law, if you're a Pursley, you know, uh, later down the line, it'll be Mingies. You know, like represent the Mingies, the Campbells, right? That's how it goes. So if you are of a family, that what they're saying is we, we want you to represent, live like you are one. And you will, by the way, represent the kingdom that you truly belong to. People will see the kingdom that you belong to by your actions. They'll see who you represent. And so Paul wrote this to the believers. The believers had been formed as a colony, if you will, on earth. And here's the deal. The most important weapon in our arsenal of furthering the gospel in this world, the best way we can magnify the characteristics and the attributes of God is by our lifestyle. Many times we'll point someone to a sermon or a really, really well-written book, but that, none of that matters if it doesn't actually translate to your life. People will believe what you do before they believe what you say. And, and I know that for a fact because that is what won my heart to Jesus Christ. I saw Jesus in other people. They don't see Jesus in you, but you tell them to come to know Jesus, they won't care because you aren't even to Jesus. Does that make sense? That's convicting, but it's reality. And we live in the show-me state, right? We should understand this anyway. We don't believe anything unless someone shows us. Hey, I can do 100 push-ups. Show me. I can't do 100 push-ups. I don't need to show you. But if you say you believe in Jesus, show people that by your life. He says, stand fast in one spirit, verse 27. He says, let your conduct be worthy of the gospel of Christ so that whether I come and see you or whether I am absent, I may hear of your affairs, that you stand fast in one spirit, with one mind, striving together for the gospel, for the faith of the gospel. He says, stand fast in one spirit. The same idea as we studied at the last part of Ephesians in chapter 6, where Paul explained to them the idea of holding their ground and fighting for it. If you have the faith of Jesus Christ, guard it. It's, it's like a handoff in football. How many times have you seen the quarterback lean back and give it to the running back, and him, his job is what? To grab a hold of it, to receive it, to cover that thing and guard it with his life, and then to plow through and hope there's a gap. Now, if there's no gap and he gets knocked down and he lets go of it, was it worth it? Not really, because he didn't make any ground. Many times, if he fumbles it and somebody else gets it, it could mean the other team scores. In the kingdom of God, we are making ground, and each person that starts believing in Jesus is a running back. We're running backs. We're not defensive. We're running backs. We've had it handed to us, and if we don't grab a hold of that thing and run with all it's worth, we're going to drop it. Guard it with everything. 
Put your arms in front of that thing and do not let go. There's no fumbling. Because when you fumble, here's what happens. Number one, the kingdom of God doesn't advance in your life. And you can't hand it off to anybody else. You can't keep furthering the gospel. People, we have to understand the next generation of Christians, we're one generation away from extinction. If we don't hand off the faith to young people like are sitting here today, it will not continue because we die. But the gospel doesn't. And if we hand it off to them successfully, the kingdom keeps going further. But we have to hand it off and we have to guard it in the meantime. One of the ways we can guard it is by living it. Another way that we can guard it is by standing fast. And so he says, stand fast in one spirit, locking our shields of faith together, to use another analogy, defending the faith, not defending God. Does God need us to defend him? Absolutely not. But we can defend the faith that's been handed off to us. He doesn't need us to defend him, but defending the faith that we've been handed down to us through knowing and trusting Jesus by teaching and the hearing of the word of God. This is not my job. It is my job to teach the Word of God. It's your job to hand it off to those that you're responsible for. They will not gain it as easily from me as they will from you. It's just how God does it. But then he says in verse 27, he says, Stand fast in one spirit, with one mind striving together for the the faith of the gospel. Now, I don't know anybody in here that's not touched by some sort of sport or hasn't played or hasn't watched it recently. So this will all translate. Striving together is where we get our English word athletic. How crazy is that? Striving together. Now, when you think of athletics, if the team doesn't strive together, everyone knows it, right? Because they fail. They will not win. They might win if they've got Michael Jordan Duncan every five seconds. But you can tell when a team strives together as a team and not as an individual. But they have to work together as, t- as a team under one leader, one coach. And that leader is not me, by the way. Who is the leader? The leader is Jesus. If each one of us as individuals will follow Jesus with everything that we have, we're not going to step on one another's toes. And if we do, we'll give each other grace. That's the, that's the beautiful thing about it. When a team is working together and they're following the plays their coach has given them, even when they mess up, they're all encouraging one another because they just didn't run the play right. But if they've all got their own individual playbook in mind and they go out there, ignore what the coach says, ignore what the quarterback says, and they just go run a play and they don't score, they weren't going to. If they do, it was luck. It wasn't planned. It wasn't part of the scheme. And so he says, strive together. When a team does not work together, we notice it, right? When a team does work together, we notice it. it, it and, and everybody looks at that team and they go, wow, they really worked together. And they give some glory to the coach, and they should, because a, good, a team plays good when they got a good coach, if they're willing to listen. But it takes that interaction with one another. And I love what Psalm chapter 133, verse 1 says. It says, behold... In other words, pay attention how good and how pleasant it is for brethren to dwell together in unity. When you watch a game and a team plays together, it's a beautiful thing. It's a masterpiece. It's just, you watch it and you're like, that was art. And the same is true for the church. When we are all surrendered to following Jesus as individuals 
And as we see that plan come together in the house of God, and as God does his work through the church, and we all work together, the world sees that, and it's a beautiful thing, and they're like trying to figure out who's orchestrating it. So the first question always becomes, who's their pastor? Which I'm okay with that. Because when they ask me that, or when they ask you that, and you point them to me and they come talk to me, you know what I'm going to tell them? Jesus is good, because it's like herding cats. You know, <laughs> like leading the body of Christ is not easy. But when the Lord does it, everyone can tell because it's a group of people that have nothing, hardly anything in common. Their, their backgrounds are being raised, uh, their likes and dislikes, uh, their food tendencies, whatever it might be, the sports that they like, the teams that they like, um, what kind of houses they like, what kind of whatever it is, we don't have really that much in common. But what we definitely all have in common is Jesus. And so when we follow him, the world sees that and they see us working together and they go, there has to be some sort of coach involved that, that brought them all together. And that's when Jesus is magnified because we can go, well, it wasn't Mingi, He's kind of, he jacks it up every week. And it wasn't personally, or it wasn't any of you, but it was one God being magnified through us working together. The world doesn't have people working together. At, at best, look at some of the Fortune 500 companies. When they're working together, it's good. But usually there's somebody that's money hungry or greedy, and they'll take all the credit. And next thing you know, it blows up the whole thing. And so it's different. He says, strive together. What is he telling us to strive together for? He says the faith. Passing the faith to the next generation. And I already touched on this. If we will strive together to pass the... If our goal will be to pass the faith on to the next generation, and we're successful of that, we, we've been successful for the Lord. However that looks, whether it's one person or 20 or 1,000. Then he says in verse 28, not in any way terrified by your adversaries, which is to them a proof of perdition, but to, to you of salvation. So he says, as you are doing these things, as you're standing fast in the faith, in one spirit, as you're striving together for the, for the, the furtherance of the gospel, don't be terrified by your adversaries. Now, if you're living for Jesus, you're going to have adversaries. People are going to disagree with you. But he says, I want you to live with confidence. Paul had confidence. He actually said that in verse 6. He says, I'm confident of this very thing, that he who has begun a good work in you will complete it until the day that Jesus returns. That's, that's some confidence. That's not confidence for one generation. That's confidence for all generations. But then he says, having lived with confidence, stand fast in one spirit, strive together for the faith, all while not being terrified by your adversaries. As Christians, we should not be afraid of those who oppose us. In 1 Peter chapter 3, he, uh, Peter actually writes about this. Now, remember Peter, a disciple of Jesus, had some fear, right? We, everyone that I talked to is like, I can relate with Peter. Because the Bible so openly scribbles down his failures. He had fears. When Jesus uh, told his disciples he was going to be crucified, Paul, uh, Peter was like, what? You can't be crucified. And he struggled with that all the way to the day of the crucifixion, to the point that when Jesus said, hey, the hour's come, 
here comes my adversary. Judas brings these men in with torches and spears and, and swords and then gets ready to drag Jesus off. And what does Peter do at that moment? He gets out his sword, which was a little kind of like a little dagger in his belt, and he cuts off the ear of one of the servants of the high priest. He's defending. He's defensive. He's not giving a defense. He's defensive. There's a difference. When you are defensive, and ask my wife, I get this way, when I'm defensive, I start trying to cut all the other people's ears off. I start trying to defend myself. But that's not what he's telling us. He says, don't be afraid of your adversaries. Who fights our battles for us? It's Jesus. It's a Sunday school answer, but it's still true. Jesus is the one that fights our battles for us. And Jesus told Peter, put your sword away. If you fight by the sword, you're going to die by the sword. So he put his sword away, and then Jesus had to fix his mess up. So if we're not called to fight that way, how are we called to fight? 1 Peter chapter 3, Peter, years later, having learned this lesson, verse 13, he says this, Who is he who will harm you if you become followers of what is good? But even if you should suffer for righteousness' sake, you are blessed. Now, Peter didn't get this on his own, by the way. He's quoting Jesus. Because in Matthew chapter 5, Jesus said, Blessed are you if you are persecuted or if you suffer for righteousness' sake, for yours is the kingdom of heaven. He says, Blessed are you when you're persecuted. Blessed are you when you suffer. Oh, how happy is what the word means. So he says, if you suffer for righteousness' sake, you're actually blessed. Now, how many people put that on their bumper sticker? <laughs> hey, I was suffering yesterday. God loves me. No one says that. Said, Where are you, God? I'm suffering. That's what our attitude is. He says, but if you suffer for righteousness' sake, you're blessed. He says, do not be afraid of their threats. Do not be troubled. But instead, he says in verse 15, sanctify or set apart the Lord God in your hearts and always be ready to give a defense to everyone who asks you a reason for the hope that is in you with meekness and with fear. Having a good conscience that when they defame you as evildoers, they who revile your good conduct in Christ will be ashamed. Anybody ever spoken unrighteously about you and said you did something that you didn't do or accused you of something when you were wrongly, wrongfully being accused? He says, don't be afraid of their threats and don't be troubled, but instead realize that God is God. He's not you. Set him apart. Realize that he's bigger than this circumstance and always be ready instead of defending yourself, be ready to give a defense to everyone who sees this hope in you. When someone reviles you and you treat them well, not in most cases, but in some, they'll come back to you and go, why did you respond that way? What they're asking you is, why do you have hope beyond what I think about you? And at that moment, you have the opportunity to tell them about Jesus. You don't have to go, did you know Jesus died for your sins? You don't have to do that. But when they say, why don't you care what I think? Why did you not treat me like I treated you. And then you can say, because my hope's not in how you treat me. I'm not hoping in things being perfect. I'm hoping in Jesus. He's going to be my defense. Then you don't have to worry about defending yourself. The Lord will do it for you. And you'll have a good conscience, he says in verse 16, that when they defame you as evildoers, 
those who revile your good conduct in Christ, they'll actually be ashamed. Think about that. They'll be ashamed. You don't have to shame them. They will know that they did wrong. Their own conscience will condemn them. He said it is better if it is the will of God to suffer for doing good than for doing evil. How many of you have suffered for doing evil? Don't raise your hands. How many of you have suffered for doing evil? I have. I deserved it. But wouldn't you much rather, now that you're a believer, suffer for doing the right thing? Because when we suffer for doing the right thing and we're willing to go through that with joy, Jesus is magnified. So, he says there in 1 Peter, we are unafraid of our adversaries, those who oppose our beliefs, and we have confidence in what we believe, it speaks volumes to people around us. When we're unafraid of those who are against us, when we don't try to defend ourselves, but we hold fast to the fact that Jesus will have the last word, it speaks volumes. People see that and they're like, wow, he's anchored to something I can't see. He believes in something wholeheartedly. This isn't something that's just when everything's going good. So the results of this confidence that God gives us leads to what the Holy Spirit was supposed to do. In John chapter 16, verse 8, Jesus said, I'm going to send the Holy Spirit who is going to fill you, and he will do three things. He will convict the world of sin, of righteousness, and of the coming judgment. Sin, righteousness, and judgment. When we handle things the way that Jesus has taught us, and when we handle things the way Paul's just described, those who oppose you will be convinced of their own perdition. That's what it says there in verse um, 28, I believe. He says, when you're not terrified of your adversaries, this is proof to them of their perdition. What is perdition? I had to look it up. I, don't, I had no idea. It's proof of their ruin or their loss or their imminent destruction. When we behave the way that the kingdom tells us to behave, like citizens of heaven, they will be convinced that they're actually the ones at a loss, that they're actually the ones that will be judged if we do it right. They'll also be convicted of our righteousness because it's visible. Those who are walking in Christ will be convinced of their own salvation. It'll, be a convinc- it'll convince them that we're living right, and it'll also remind us and show us that God has actually tra- changed us. How many of you guys doubt your salvation sometimes? Don't raise your hands. How many of you guys doubt that God's really changed you? I do, because sometimes I I get attacked. Sometimes I really mess up big time. But what's really cool is that when God allows people to defame us or speak unwell of us, and we interact with them, and we don't revile them, it reminds us, wow, I actually am living like Jesus. I can relate with Jesus now. When people called him a, a prophet of Satan, did he defend himself? No. He, he, he reasoned with them, but he let his testimony, he let his conduct be his biggest preacher. He preached the gospel, but his actions were just as much of his preaching as his words were. How he interacted with sinners, how he interacted with, with Pharisees and scribes that were adamantly against him and hated him, and he knew that they were going to murder him. 
But his conduct was worthy of a heavenly kingdom because that's where his citizenship is. He's the king there. And so we, as his children, must do the same thing in order to show the kingdom we're from. It'll convict the world of sin when we handle things this way. It'll convict the world, us of our own righteousness that we know had to come from Jesus. And then it will convict of sin, excuse me, of judgment. So this is what the Holy Spirit does when he fills a believer. Romans 12, chapter one, or verse 1, to the left. I always used to go to the right to get to Romans. Romans chapter 12. Paul, again, writing this, he says, I beg of you, brethren, by the mercies of God, that you present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your reasonable service. This is one way that we can do that. He says, and do not be conformed to this world, but instead be transformed by the renewing of your mind that you may prove what is the good and acceptable and perfect will of God. You're proving to others by your lifestyle what God accepts as a sacrifice of a life. And so when you do this, it magnifies the character of the Lord. So stand fast in the faith and for the faith. Be of one mind together by faith and strive together for the passing on of the faith in the next generation. And Christ is magnified by us when we also suffer. We talked about that. If need be, No one is willing to suffer unless they are confident that they're suffering for a worthy cause. Think about it. Kelly's getting ready to read a book about a gentleman who wrote a memoir after being bombed at Pearl Harbor, and he was a survivor. Was it 80% of his body was burned? 80%. He survived. And because of that, he was knocked down, and he was a little upset afterwards because they blindsided us, right? And so in order to deal with that, what he did was he said, you know what, I'm going to re-enlist. 80% of his body had been burned. Every day that he went to PT, every day that he was going to go out to battle and wear all the gear, he would have 80% of his body scars. I don't know if you know a whole lot about burns, but if you've ever had one, you know that it itches like all tarnation, whatever that means. Moms always say it, tarnation. I think it's a destination. It itches bad. And when you sweat, you have no pores anymore. So you can't sweat. It's miserable. What does it say about that man that he was willing to re-enlist, to get involved in the military again, to go through PT, to do all the stuff that they ask him to do, to wear the rucksack, and all the stuff that he had a cause that he was willing to suffer for before he ever got a shot fired at him? before he ever walked out off the the ship into the nation he was going to fight in. He was suffering every day just wearing clothes. Are you willing to suffer for the kingdom of God like that man is, to suffer for his kingdom, his country? Many times we, we just blow the trumpet and we encourage people, hey, go for it, for all kinds of stuff that's not really worth fighting for, whether it's family honor or someone called you a name or you name your thing that you're willing to fight for. God says, are you willing to fight for my kingdom for the furtherance of the gospel? Paul was willing to suffer. He says there in verse um, 29, to you it has been granted. That means it's been gifted. 
You've been given this free of charge. He says, you've been granted on behalf of Christ the ability to believe in Him. Now, that's an ability that only God can give you. You've been granted the faith, a precious gift just handed to you. But then he says another gift that I don't know too many of us are excited to embrace. He says, you've also been granted to suffer for Jesus' sake. Now, Paul knew what it was like to suffer. He knew what it was like to be spoken unwell of. He knew what it was like to be imprisoned for the gospel. He says, but this has been a gift given to you by Jesus himself, the ability to suffer for his sake, having the same conflict which you saw in me and now here is in me. He says, you should have this conflict in you, a desire to depart and to be in heaven, not a desire to escape this life, but to depart and move on to what your reward and your award is. But he says, but also you should have this tugging at you to remain here and impart the gospel into the lives of the people that you know right now because you can't preach the gospel in heaven. Everyone there has already heard it. They believe it. They've trusted in it. They're now gaining rewards from it. This is the only place you can share the gospel. So let me ask you these questions and then I'll, I'll stop. The question we need to ask ourselves before the Lord is this, and this is something that I would encourage you guys to do. Ask the question, does my life magnify the Lord Jesus? Maybe you still don't know what that means this morning. Do I stand fast with other believers in one spirit? Do I work together as a team with other believers with one goal in mind, that goal being to magnify Jesus Christ? Am I afraid of those who oppose what I believe in, and does it cause me to back away from behaving like a citizen of God's kingdom, even when I'm not around other believers? I'm guilty of that one, by the way. I'm just confessing that, in case you struggle with it. When I'm around people that oppose what I believe, I back away too many times, and I'm ashamed of that. But God can change all these things. If you don't do these things, God's the only one that can change it. And then he said, then I wrote the question, am I willing to suffer for doing what is right in order to reveal the person of Jesus to those around me? Am I willing to suffer even though others might think that I actually did what I was accused of? Am I willing to do that and just to take it? Warren Wiersbe wrote the following, does Christ need to be magnified? After all, how can a mere human being ever magnify the Son of God? And then he says this, The stars are much bigger than a telescope, and yet the telescope magnifies them and brings them closer. The believer's body is to be a telescope that brings Jesus Christ close to people. To the average person, Christ is a misty figure in history who lived centuries ago. But as the unsaved watch the believer go through a crisis, they can see Jesus magnified and brought so much closer. To the Christian with the single mind, the single focus, Christ is with us here and now. The telescope brings distant things closer. The microscope makes tiny things look big. To the unbeliever, Jesus is not very big. Other people and other things are far more important. But as the unbeliever watches the Christian go through a crisis experience, he ought to be able to see how big Jesus Christ really is. 
The believer's body is a lens that makes a little Christ look very big and a distant Christ come very close. Paul was not afraid of life, death, suffering. Either way, he wanted to magnify Christ in his body. No wonder he had joy. Psalm chapter 34, and then we'll close. Psalm 34. David, King David, wrote this, I will bless the Lord at all times. His praise shall continually be in my mouth. My soul shall make its boast in the Lord. The humble shall hear of it and be glad. Oh, magnify the, the Lord with me and let us exalt his name together. I sought the Lord and he heard me. He delivered me from all my fears. They looked to him and were radiant and their faces were not ashamed. This poor man, speaking of himself, cried out, and the Lord heard him and saved him out of all his troubles. The angel of the Lord encamps all around those who fear him and delivers them. Taste and see that the Lord is good. Blessed is the man who trusts in him. O oh, fear the Lord, you his saints. There is no want to those who fear him. The young lions lack and they suffer hunger, but those who seek the Lord shall not lack any good thing. Come, you children, listen to me. I will teach you the fear of the Lord. Who is the man who desires life and loves many days that he may see good? Keep your tongue from evil and your lips from speaking deceit. Depart from evil and do good. Seek peace and pursue it. The eyes of the Lord are on the righteous and his ears are open to their cry. The face of the Lord is against those who do evil to cut off the remembrance of them from the earth. The righteous cry out, and the Lord hears and delivers them out of all their troubles. The Lord is near to those who have a broken heart and saves as such as have a contrite spirit. Many are the afflictions of the righteous, but the Lord delivers him out of them all. He guards all his bones, not one of them is broken. Even shall slay the wicked, excuse me, evil shall slay the wicked, and those who hate the righteous shall be condemned. The Lord redeems the soul of his servants, and none of those who trust in him shall be condemned. So, let's pray. Father God, we thank you for the reminder this morning. We thank you that when we truly give our lives to following and obeying you, that even when we are giving a testimony to others, that the very fact that we're willing to suffer or to do anything for your name is a reminder to us of the very salvation that we cling to. Father, in our doubts, remind us. In our fears, help us to be fearless because you're the one that is defending us. We thank you so much that in everything that we do, you can cause us to be those who give a pioneer advance for the gospel. Lord, we look expectantly to see how you're going to use us this week. I thank you that each and every day that you're not only feeding us your word so that we can live, but also so that we can share it with others. Father, show us those opportunities you're giving us. Help us to love our enemies like Paul's speaking of, and help us to magnify you in all that we do, whether we realize it or not. In Jesus' name, amen.